gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice, are the most powerful forces of good ever assembled. Superman! Batman and Robin! with their space monkey, Bleak. Dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 104 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and with this episode we are going to go even deeper as we barrel toward the end of my coverage of the all-new Super Friends Hour. Yes, we're getting to the end of what... I am considering season two of Super Friends. I don't want to say this is a season that needs getting through, but as there, ha- I do believe there have been better episodes in this season than there were in the initial season, which aired in 1973. But the closer I get to season three means the closer I get to Challenge of the Super Friends, which means the closer I get to some actual DC Comics villains appearing in this show. And I am definitely looking forward to that. So, let's get this thing started, shall we? We're going to start, as usual, with feedback from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode number 94, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Let me begin with the theme of pollution, which you've noted is prominent in this first season of The Super Friends. Back in the 1970s, pollution became a big concern for the U.S. Recycling began slowly in about the early to mid-70s, and unleaded gasoline began to appear at pumps around the same time. Pollution began to show up, particularly in kids' shows around the same time. I think people figured that one way to get adults involved was to make kids hyper-aware of the ills of pollution, and they would talk about it to dads and moms. In the actual episode this time, we have a couple of corny names. Noah Tall in The Balloon People, and and in The Fantastic Furps, we have Mike Horoscope and Polyethylene. Sheesh, those are real knee-slappers from the writers, aren't they? In both those episodes, we finally get to see bad rather than simply misguided antagonists. Both Noah Tall and King Plasto are interested in both money and power, rather than trying to make the world better. Although these guys are pretty much played for last, I think this is, overall, a turn for the better for the series. Heroes are often only as good as their enemies are bad, and previously the enemies haven't really been bad so much as careless or thoughtless. The idea of true villains as antagonists will eventually reach its high point when we meet the Legion of Doom, but this is a step in the right direction, I think. I don't know if it will continue for long at this point, but it gives me hope. Live long and prosper, Dave. And as always, thank you, Dave, for writing in. And uh, I'll just address some of the points Dave made. Uh, one of the po- points he made in early in the letter about pollution. Yeah, I guess one way to get to the adults is to get the kids talking about something because, boy, do they talk about it, you know. And they will lect- and kids will lecture if uh, they think mom and dad aren't doing uh, something the right way. Well, that, if they're comfortable enough with mom and dad to do that. I try to make sure Haley is comfortable enough that she can, you know, tell us anything, so... If something like that ever came to her mind, she would say something. I know she was very big into Earth Day when that came around back in April. But she hasn't uh, picked up any, uh, quote-unquote, environmentalist ticks since uh, then. She just kind of wops from thing to thing, depending on what she's learning about in school. But yes, pollution was a big thing at the time. You know, you see those memes on Facebook all the time, especially around the time when... uh, not to get political on the podcast, but in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected and and there was talk about rolling back emissions goals, you know, and bringing back coal as a 
fuel source. You know, we saw all those memes about this is what New York City looked like in nineteen in the nineteen seventies. You see the skyline, uh, you know, obscured by a big uh, haze, and then they say this is what it looks like now, and the picture looks more clear. You know, like I said, not to get political, but the pollution is a lot better now than it was then. But those were the kinds of things people were concerned about when those things happened. Not having been in New York City really a lot since then, I can't speak to the air quality, but I don't think it's necessarily any worse than it was before. But there's that. And yes, the names in these two episodes, Noah Tall in uh, The Balloon People and uh, Mike Roscoe in Polyethylene. I wonder how much time the writers spent coming up with these names. They probably spent more time doing that than they did writing the plots of these episodes. Ugh. And as far as the uh, villains getting to be bad rather than, rather than simply misguided, I'm not sure that continued a ton through season one, but we're starting to see now that it's five years later, no, four years later, and we're into season two that we are seeing villains being a little more villainous, even if they're not going full villain, they're doing more villainous things and not being as, uh, you know, careless, misguided helpers. We see a lot more of that in the uh, short episodes. You know, the ones that feature the uh, ghastly, the guest uh, super friend or two super friends. We see a lot more of the misguided uh, antagonists there than we do in the main 20-minute episodes. And uh, Dave mentions his letter, and I just mentioned it a few minutes ago, We, as we are barreling forward toward the Legion of Doom. And like I said, that is something I am definitely looking forward to. Which And that'll begin in probably three weeks, I think, if I'm... Counting out correctly, this is episode 104, I believe episode 107 is the first episode of Challenge of the Super Friends. There's that to look forward to, but for now we're going to look forward to the two episodes I'll be covering this week, uh, Exploration Earth and the Lion Men and the shorts that surround them, whereas last week's was very Superman heavy, this week not so much as the Man of Steel isn't featured very much in the short episodes this this time around. I believe we'll be back to more Superman heavy shorts episodes I'm going to be covering next week. So, for now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm going to come back with Exploration Earth. Hang around, folks. R. What's that stand for? Robin. Hello, everyone. This is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin. Everyone loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? I'm right in the middle of uh, recording a, an ad for my, my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy wonder time. Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin. Everyone loves the Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because... Everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of November 12th, 1977. And we're going to start with Exploration Earth. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. A giant spherical meteor lands on Earth but it becomes a giant robot intent on taking people and property back to its home planet. 
One at a time, the super friends try to stop it, but can find no flaw in the system. The one the twins save a boy on a bicycle, but are captured by the robot lander. Upon learning that the, that the device comes from the planet Xeno, Superman goes there and confronts the rather small people. I didn't come to harm you. It's you who endanger our planet. That's what they all say before they try to take us over. We are sending our space probes all over the galaxy to gather information so we can prepare our defense. They won't listen to reason. I've got to get out of here. If my heat vision can melt those beams, I may be able to cut myself loose. He's free! Off, I'm as strong as ever. He takes a second lander to Earth and stops the first one, freeing the people trapped inside. In the end, he sends both landers into the sun. Superman, you have taught my people and me a great lesson. Our mistrust and fear of others was what caused our problems in the first place. If you're always watching out for enemies, you'll find only enemies. So look for friends instead. Right, there's nothing to be afraid of. The knock! Another lander! Bleak! Right, Zan, nothing to be afraid of. Alright, so this is going to be an episode in which. Like the synopsis mentions, some very small people are going to attack the Earth, basically to protect themselves. And we're going to find out the uh, folly of their ways as we go through this episode. So basically this starts with a father and a son spotting what appears to be a giant meteor, but it turns out to be a giant orange sphere. It looks like a giant naval orange at first. But it, from the, some hatches open in the bottom of it, and it literally starts picking up a village. Like it's a giant vacuum cleaner. All this while a TV newsman narrates and wonders if the spaceship can actually be stopped. Well, so far, nobody else is stopping it. Now, then things get really weird, and this might be the weirdest thing I've ever seen in a children's cartoon, and I've watched a lot of children's cartoons over the years. So Jaina and Zan are giving Gleek, their super monkey, a bath. Not so unusual. They use their powers to do so. Again, not necessarily unusual. If I had superpowers that could help me make something easier, I'd probably do that as well. But Zan becomes the bathwater. Think about this for a moment. The water that Gleek is bathing in is Zan in a different form. I don't know, that just seems wrong on so many levels. I mean, imagine if you transformed into water and there was a monkey washing itself basically on your body. That's how weird this idea is. And while all this is going on, Jaina has morphed into a horse... And is washing Gleek with her tail. You know, just not to be outdone by her brother, who is the bathwater. She basically turned herself into a washcloth. A grown man wrote this, folks. I think. Cartoons were, and TV and writing were, was really the realm of men at this time. There's very few women in these jobs. So, somebody actually came up with this. And thought this was something that should be into a, in a kid's cartoon. I'm hoping kids watching this only thought it was funny and... Not as creepy as I'm finding it as an adult. If you remember seeing this particular scene as an adult, I'm curious what you thought of it then. I mean, if you previously saw this scene when you were a kid watching Super Friends, send me an email at manascreen at gmail.com. I'm curious to know if you remember what your reaction was to seeing 
Gleek bathe in Zan bath water, and Jaina wash him with her tail. Oh, just thinking about it gives me the shivers. So we're going to shiver right on to the trouble alert, which comes through with the expositional phone call to save us before this scene gets any more disturbing than it already is. The Justice League emergency alarm. Wonder Woman, a strange space probe from another planet has landed and is taking samples of people, cars, buildings. We can't stop it. You've got to help. Right, General. We'll notify the other super friends and take immediate action. Aquaman calling Batman, Robin, and Superman. An exploratory lander from outer space has landed on Earth. Your assistance is needed. Sector 11. Now the General phones the super friends about the giant orange, which is now walking on some spidery legs, and it's sucking up a Ferris wheel, literally, with all the people on it. And the first super friends on the scene are Batman and Robin in the Batcopter. Was Superman doing his laundry or something at the time? Why isn't he first on the scene? You know, faster than a speeding bullet and all. But Superman does show up and tries to make himself useful, but and tries to lift the sphere away, but apparently it's made with a kryptonite alloy, which renders Superman as useless as a Wonder Twin. So, apparently the lander can adjust to anything thrown at it. It apparently has the ability to analyze and adapt, so I guess it's an early version of the Borg, which we were introduced to in Star Trek The Next Generation. They have the ability to analyze and adapt, Commander. And the once it's done... Uh, Doing its studies and on land, the adapter goes into, into the water and sucks up half the sea life. So basically, Aquaman summons the whales to cover the probe with a landslide. Doesn't work, and the lander leaves. So, not knowing what to do, the super friends are going to run off, be with their, like I mentioned before, their capes between their legs, and they're going to check with NASA. And, you know, that's good. NASA has the uh, top minds in the country this time. I'm not sure what NASA's up to these days, but... Yes, super friends. Our computers have detected a possible way to stop the space probe. All you have to do is turn the Justice League satellite around so that it faces the lander. Right. A strong burst of radio waves from the Justice League satellite may jam the lander's computer programming. Thanks. We'll try it. Super friends, emergency. The lander has been spotted heading for Metropolis Harbor. I'll head off the lander in the bay. And I'll take the invisible jet and rotate the Justice League satellite. Come on, Jaina. Superman may need my assistance. And mine too, Wonder Brother. So Superman is going to stop the lander as it's attacking Metropolis, while Wonder Woman is going to power up the jet so she can turn the Justice League satellite to send radio waves to jam the lander's computer. Okay, that's a good plan. Let's see how it works. And at first it works, and it gives the lander a shake-up, but... Some kind of pipe emerges inside the lander's control area, and that blocks the radio waves, I guess, uh, protecting the machine's brain or whatever it is. Well, either way, once that once the cylinder comes up and blocks the radio waves, the lander can pretty much do whatever it wants. They have the ability to analyze and adapt, Commander. So, the Wonder Twins are now going to do something useful. They're done giving Gleek a bath, and uh, they save a kid from getting sucked up into the lander. And Zan turns into a glacier, and this causes him to uh, slip and fall off his bike. Not necessarily... The most graceful save that a superhero has ever done, but the kid isn't in the lander, so I guess that's something. And a- after he slips and f- after this kid slips and falls off his bike, Jaina becomes a condor and she flies him away. So while Superman is uh, preparing the, uh, I believe they're calling it the Metropolis Bay Bridge, it was attacked by the lander and Superman is fixing it. He watches the twins and Gleek get sucked up, and the cynic in me would say, eh, Superman doesn't care and move on because the lander took an annoyance off his hands. But Superman does care. I don't. Superman does. So now we get our first look at uh, the creature that seems to be in charge of this lander. There's no way to tell anything about it just from looking at it in this screenshot. It's green. It's 
appears to be furry. It looks like a green gorilla at first with some long pointed ears. If it was uh, pale yellow, I would almost think it looks like a demon etrigan, but it doesn't. So now the lander stops in front of the super friends, allowing uh, Wonder Woman and Batman to sneak in, and I'm sure that was not part of its plan. And, you know, we've already seen the Green Gorilla guy, but I'm really questioning who our villain is. I mean, the villain is not just this random probe walking around. So inside the lander, Batman gets caught by his ankle, and Wonder Woman snags him with her lasso after he tortures his way out of a clamp. So there's that, and he gets away from that. And now the face on the screen is announcing that it's time to start the freezing process. So, the heroes do find out where the alien is from. It's from the planet Xeno. And... I believe they sent some kind of signal to Zeno from the Hall of Justice. Our only hope is to find out where it came from and have whoever sent it stop it. Satellite scanners indicate the origin of the probe is the planet Zeno in Sector 17. I'm hooking up to their radio frequency and we'll present them on the monitor. What do you want, Earthmen? Your space probe is damaging the life and safety of Earth. You must release its occupants and retrieve your lander immediately. Never! Why should we worry about what you tiny Earth creatures command? The galaxy is fair game, and we take what we want! And, uh, you know, asking them to stop the probe, and they refuse because the galaxy is fair game. They're going to take what they want. Okay, I mean, I don't understand... What gives them the right to believe the galaxy is fair game for their conquest? But that's what they want. That's that's the line they're peddling. So, okay, I guess we're going to have to react to that. And Superman reacts by he's going to fly to Xeno to solve the problem. So, while the twins are on the probe and about to be frozen, Zan and Jaina escape with the use of their wonder powers. I believe Zan becomes uh, some kind of steam or gas or something. So he can phase out through the container that they're in and they make their escape. Except they run into a robot and are frozen solid. So, And it's funny, Zan was a mist, so he is uh, frozen solid and then shattered. So I wonder how he's going to put himself together. Superman approaches the, the Xeno leadership. And it's interesting to see how small Superman looks compared to the door. Forcing home the idea that these Zenosians are like 50 feet tall. And then we get quite the surprise. These guys aren't 50 feet tall. They might not even be 50 millimeters tall. They're very tiny. But not so tiny that they can't shoot Superman with the kryptonite cables and he's tied up like a fresh, like a freshly cut Christmas tree. Lying on his back looking up at the ceiling. Probably not the best day Superman has ever had, but he's going to do a lot from his trussed up position. More so than the super friends that are on the ground. So the lander is on the move again and the Zenotians clearly have a case of height envy. They're basically sending out preemptive strikes all over the, the galaxy because they're scared of being taken over by an alien race. So Superman tries unsuccessfully to negotiate them and to uh, relieve their fears, but they are not biting. So Superman is going to take a second lander, and he's going to use it to stop the first one. And when Superman returns to the Earth, the episode basically turns into uh, Rock'em Sock'em robots as the uh, landers fight each other. And while Superman has the uh, original lander distracted in a, let's call it a robotic fist fight for lack of a better term, Batman saves the rest of the people who are on the lander. And eventually they defeat the lander in, you know, the kind of fight you would expect from two giant oranges. And eventually Superman programs them both to fly into the sun. You know, talk about a Viking funeral right there. So now that uh, their plans have been foiled, the Zenosians have learned their lesson. And they won't be afraid of everybody, and they're not going to cause additional problems for themselves out of fear. Which is good, because when you think about it, what if the Zenosians bite off more than they can chew? I mean, let's say the Zenosians attack some random planet. And 
the natives turn out to be more than they can handle. The natives of the planet they're attacking would be within their right to defend themselves and fight back, maybe even follow the Denosians. I wouldn't promote genocide, but they would definitely want to exact some kind of vengeance on them. So you know, maybe sending out preemptive strikes to potential enemies is not as good of an idea as trying to make some friends. Aquaman encouraged them to make friends because, as he said, if they look for enemies, they will find them everywhere. And the answer in the two Dakota segments was Spaceship. So this was, you know, an okay episode. I mean, there was nothing really great about it. But it wasn't that bad either, you know. It was basically an unbeatable machine that it seemed to be able to function on its own and really gave the Super Friends a hard time. It wasn't really attacking anything except, you know, I'm guessing it was studying the Ferris wheel and the other people and stuff like that. But, you know, it's just not the right way to go to... I mean, honestly, with Earth, if you're going to attack them, they'll just attack. They can't defend themselves against extraterrestrial invaders. At least not right now. Maybe once the new Space Forces in play will be able to. Now, not a bad episode. Not a great one either. But, you know, average. You know, C+, plus maybe, if I were inclined to give it a grade. All right, so. Let's move on to The 50-Foot Woman. A female professor drinks a potion, which causes her to become a crazed giant when she hopes to prove the superiority of women. Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin track her. She catches Batman and intends to try her potion on him before being stopped when her assistant sprays an antidote. Alright, so here's a woman who wants to be as strong as a man physically. Her assistant is much smarter, saying that they don't need equal physical strength to be equal to men, and she's right. I'm not going to beat around the bush about this. Uh, men are stockier, men are men do have more physical strength than women. You know, but, you know, the, the women's uh, brains work just as well. They can keep up with men in just about every uh, mental... Uh, Every other way except for probably brute physicality. Let's just say that. But there's no reason why any woman can't be as much of a scientist as much of a scientist as any man. And that's basically what we're going to learn throughout the course of this episode. As uh, Doctor Zahn here does something only a man would do, and she tests her formula on herself and grows to massive size. And as far as the expositional phone call goes, only the featured heroes are at the Hall of Justice. They're the only ones on duty, so there's no reason to leave anyone behind this time. Now, not to be confused, Dr. Zahn is not the DC Comics villain Giganta, but it's the same principle. She is reveling in that she's not the weaker sex anymore. But, you know, as far as that goes, you know, she makes have an unfair advantage being several stories tall. And when she says she's not the weaker sex, she is thinking only in physical terms. She's not thinking with her right mind. If she were, she'd know the line she's peddling is a bunch of hogwash. Like I said, there are physical differences between men and women, but... In careers or the sciences, there is nothing a man can do that a woman can do just as well. They're equals even if society doesn't recognize them as so yet. But that's something that's changing as uh, we move forward through history. Now, Gigantic's story is really nothing like this, so there's no point in going into it here. And the post-fight crisis version is somewhat similar as she tries to cure herself of a blood disease and experiments on herself, which causes her to uh, become a giant but in this case, Dr. Zahn is obsessed with making women equal to men by any means necessary. And she is going way beyond the call of duty to make that happen. Now that the assistant has shrunk her to normal, uh, Dr. Zahn is sorry and she realizes that physical strength is not what matters. Strength of the mind is what matters. And that's basically what I've been rambling throughout the uh, my talk of this episode. Then Wonder Woman plays on a shopping stereotype by pointing out that she should have a hard time buying dresses that's 50 feet tall. You know... The shopping joke just doesn't seem to work there. We spend this whole episode, you know, at least last a few minutes of it, 
you know, the first eight, six, five or so minutes is all about chasing the giant scientist. But the whole ending is about you know, promoting that women can be equals to men. And then just to make a shopping joke at the end of it just kind of cheapens the message. At least I think so. Win some, lose some, I guess. So let's move on to cheating. The Wonder Twins help student Jack win self-respect when he helps locate two lost kids after winning a cross-country race by cheating. But before that, Aquaman will give us a swimming, les- swimming safety lesson, teaching us what to do if someone swallows pool water, take them out, and, uh... So, we're having a high school cross-country race, and it's a 10-mile run. That's no joke of a run. I don't know what high school cross-country was like in the 70s, and all of a sudden I have a feeling the writers don't know either, but as someone who's been a sports writer for the past, you know, on and off for the past 16 years... I have never seen a 10-mile high school cross-country run. The uh, high school cross-country runs that I've covered have all been 3.1 miles, the equivalent of 5K. So, high schoolers are not running 10 miles a pop. I'm sure the writer of this episode probably just didn't know that. But maybe they were running further back then. I don't know. But every cross-country race, high school cross-country race I've covered, 3.1 miles, not 10. Well, here's this one guy, Jack, who's cheating to win the race, and in order to uh, preserve the lie, he ignores uh, two lost Cub Scouts uh, down in a ravine, it looks like. I'm sure the show is not going to call them Cub Scouts, but that's the uniform they're wearing, blue, and uh, looks like they have yellow uh, kerchiefs, which almost makes them look like Wolf Scouts. You know, it doesn't, doesn't appear as though the Cub Scout uniform has changed much in 41 years. Having uh, br- briefly been in, having my stepson in Cub Scouts, I can't say the uniform hasn't changed much since when I wore one. So a panicked mother calls for help asking, seeking her two lost kids. And I will say this, Jack wins the race. Nothing e- there's nothing easy about traveling along the rope the way he did. Granted, it was cheating to get ahead and not run the full ten miles, but navigating that rope and ravine must not have been easy. It takes a great feat of physical strength to do that. So uh, the kids show up and ask for help as everyone uh, rushes to help. So the, so the racers uh, sh- are all willing to help, and Jack has an attack of conscience and informs the twins where the kids are. So Jaina saves him by turning into a kangaroo and hopping out of danger. Jack gets disqualified from the race because he cheated, but he learns he has learned self-respect. You know, good for him. Maybe he should have helped the lost kids when he had the chance instead of ignoring them so he could uh, win the race. I don't have much respect for Jack after what he did, but I'm glad he learned his lesson and will become a more well-rounded animated character when he grows up. Alright, let's finish off this segment with Attack of the Killer Bees. Aquaman and Samurai save an African village from a swarm of killer bees. Attack of the Killer Bees. Wasn't that a Superman story on one of those uh, old uh, power records? I don't know. I have to check with Chris Franklin and uh, Rob Kelly on that. Chris and Rob, if you guys are listening, was Attack of the Killer Bees on one of those uh, power records? Records. Moving on. So, we're going to Africa where man and beast live together in harmony. Yeah, right. But again, not getting political. And I can't imagine Jap- Japanese people are very thrilled about this character of Samurai. There's nothing Japanese about him other than the way he looks. He yells something that could be Japanese. We're meant to believe it is, and then he turns into a whirlwind. So here is a swarm of bees surrounding this hut. The villagers are hiding in, and they're starting to get there. During the uh, commercial break, uh, Batman and Robin teach kids how to make a foam telephone with a foam cup telephone with a wire, which I did quite a bit as a kid in the 80s. Now back to the show. Aquaman is being chased by alligators, and now Samurai yells something else in what we're meant to believe is Japanese, and he becomes invisible and grabs a large net as he and Aquaman try to grab the bees. Samurai gets the bees to follow him to the river where Aquaman takes over the bee learning. Aquaman goes over the falls, and the bees are caught. 
and the hour ends with Aquaman teaching us to take care of Cut immediately so they don't get infected. What a crap episode. I mean, granted, it's all it is is a B-roundup, but I don't know about Samurai. He seems to be one Japanese... I don't even know if he's a Japanese stereotype. He's just... There's nothing Samurai about him. He's just a guy that looks Japanese and yells something about what we're supposed to think is Japanese and uses mind powers. I don't know. Maybe his mind power is Japanese discipline or something. I don't know. If you want to see a decent Japanese character in a kid's cartoon, I'll point you to uh, Thundercats. Character of Hachiman. Or Hachiman. Well, whatever his name is. Hachiman, Hachiman, whatever. You know, he is supposed to be a samurai and he has a code of honor. You know, that's a you know, a decent portrayal of Japanese culture. I don't know what the hell Samurai is supposed to be. But what I do know is I'm supposed to be taking a break, playing a podcast promo, then I'm going to come back with The Lion Men. Hang around, folks. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Identity Crisis. Lone Wolf and Cub. Hergé's Tintin. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. I didn't know this was going to be the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. (laughs) It's always the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. Ultraman, this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo. Of how they spoke at length when I read a comic story comes first and art comes second. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. Those are our people, Emily. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Superman has basically the same relationship with Wonder Woman that he has with Batman. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or short box showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Alright, welcome back, folks. All the episodes in this segment were originally aired on November 19th, 1977. And we're going to start with The Lion Men. And our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Lion X wants to split the Earth into five pieces in order to sell each piece to a planet that needs a certain resource. I offer for sale valuable resources. Oil for your planet, Industrix. Water for Aquanautis. Plant life for the planet Foliana. And ice and valuable minerals for both of your planets. Tell us, Lion X, where will you get these resources? I have located a planet in another galaxy, rich in all these commodities. My strata ray will split this planet into five sections. Each section that contains the priceless resource you buy will be transported through space to your planet. Are there any life forms on this planet? 
There is some form of lower intelligence. You can use them as slaves or eliminate them altogether. I believe they are called Earthlings. Well, do you buy? Hmm, we could become rich with what Lionx offers. We buy. Taking over a space station, he and his lion men fire the Earth-splitting ray, causing major catastrophes around the world. The super friends try to get into the station, but Superman hits a kryptonite force field, and Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin only get a small piece of the crystal powering the beam. It does help, though, as three geologists explain that Super friends, the gem is made up of rare elements found only in remote parts of the world. Is there any way of counteracting its ray? If we could get enough of the elements needed, we could make a negative lens. And when installed on the strata ray, it would reverse the ray's effect and pull the Earth back together. How much time do we have? Two hours, maybe three if you can delay them. After that, the process becomes irreversible. Holy deadlines! We've got to slow down Lion Axe's machine until we build a new lens. And it'll be impossible to get back aboard the space station undetected. There is something those lion men wouldn't suspect. A giant space amoeba. Just what I was going to say, sis. Space amoebas are very common in their part of the universe. And a giant amoeba would be large enough to conceal Zan and myself. <laughs> and Gleek. Meanwhile, the rest of us will search for the rare elements. And let's hope we find them in time. With time running out, Wonder Woman and the twins manage to get into the station, but Wonder Woman gets captured and is forced to reveal the plan. Save it, Lion X. These walls are soundproof. Whatever your plans are, Wonder Woman, you will fail! Don't be too sure. With a little help from the Justice League voice duplicator... And your voice, Lion X. I'm going to stop your machine. Attention! This is Lionx. Turn off the strata ray immediately. I repeat, turn off the strata ray. Quickly, cut the power generators. Shut it down. Cease all operations. She did it. Now to contact the other super friends. Jupiters, Glee turned on the cameras. This is Lionx. I repeat, cease all operations. We've been tricked. Get her! Other lion men try to stop the others from gathering the elements, but the super friends succeed in breaking back into the station and stop the split of Earth with only minutes remaining. But I cannot return without my merchandise. I will lose my customers. The merchandise was never yours to take, Lionx. This will be a lesson to others in the galaxy. Anyone who deals in illegal ventures will come out a loser. Later, at the Hall of Justice. You know, the people who buy the things Lionx offers are just as wrong as he is. Let's hope that message is learned in Lionx's galaxy. They better learn that lesson, or they'll have to deal with Lion Tamer Bleak. <laughs> First, we'd better unlock Gleek's cage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay, so this episode starts with a council meeting, and we see a character we've seen before. That plant person looks like one of the uh, plant people from a previous episode. I believe it was the Day of the Plant Creatures, which actually just dropped uh, this week. That was episode 101, I believe it was. But he does look like they just reused the animated plant person from that episode and plopped it down here at this council. So there's a plant person, an ice person, a robot, and a fish person, and a lion man. And, you know, like he's going to sell them a piece of earth to satisfy their natural resources that each of his customers need. So here we've got a space station orbiting Earth, and these astronauts don't even bat an eye at an unidentified object approaching Earth. I'm not sure I'd want to live in that universe where these kinds of invasions are normal. I kind of like the fact that we're uh, not under attack by aliens every 20 minutes. So the Lion Men jam the radar, and are now invisible to the space station, and modern shows need to use meteor showers to cover a spaceship coming to Earth. You know, I never understood that. You could just use stealth technology that human radar can't see, and your spaceship is going to... Crash into Smallville, undetected. Just saying. There are plenty of ways to explain why human technology can't see a spaceship that don't involve destroying the town with a whole bunch of kryptonite. So the people are frozen, and the Lion Men have taken over the space station very easily, and the uh, space station is now sending an alarm to the Hall of Justice, because nobody sends an alarm to their superiors or to the proper authorities. The Super Friends are the proper authorities, apparently, for everything. Fortunately, Superman happens to be in space, so he's going to go check things out. YNX apparently knows of Superman, and he has studied him, so he has a kryptonite force field. Apparently, Superman didn't notice it until he crashed into it not once, but twice. So, the strata ray that's going to split the Earth is depicted as a red beam that puts a red force field around the Earth. And Superman serves as a diversion banging against kryptonite force field while Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin sneak into the station. And as this is going on, I kind of wonder what Aquaman is doing. Either way, they notice the Lion Men. Holy circuses! Lion Men! Right, Robin. Space beings from another planet. And they've taken over the space station. In a few more hours, Earth will be ripped apart and ready to be delivered to our customers. At a handsome profit, Lionx. Suffering subdivisions. Did you hear what he said? Yes, Robin. They're shooting a harmless light beam through that huge gem lens, and the lens is creating the Earth-splitting ray. We've got to find a way to stop it without hurting Earth. Intruders! Surrender! We've been discovered! And they find the gemstone lens that is powering the Earth-splitter, but they're caught by the Lion Man and have to fight their way out of there. Now, for some reason, the Lion Men have little purple paddles on their hands, and they use that to uh, shoot at Batman and Robin. They're interesting, I guess it's supposed to be laser guns or something like that. But I guess the animators aren't allowed to draw them looking like guns, so they look like little uh, paddles. They look a lot like that little paddle, you know, when you're a kid, you have that paddle with the Velcro on it, and you use it to catch the ball. Kind of looks like that, except they emit laser beams instead of catching a tennis ball or whatever it is. And I think they still have that toy out there. I think Kaylee or my stepson Corey had one at one point. I wouldn't get Emily when she tossed the paddle at me. But anyway, Batman and Robin escape to the hall. And I must say, I like that establishing shot of the hall with the invisible jet and the Batmobile parked outside. So the Super Friends have the best geologist on, on the case. They need elements to turn around the beam and save the Earth. And of course, they don't have much time. Two, maybe three hours. Not much time. It might take me longer to record certain podcasts than... Uh, it needs to take them to find these uh, gemstones. So the one twin suggests they need a giant space amoeba, because when don't you need a giant space amoeba? 
I always need a giant space amoeba. And sure enough, Jaina turns into one. And apparently a space amoeba is an animal, because if it was not an animal, Jaina wouldn't be able to turn into it. So here's a sight to see. They're all riding Jaina, who is a huge blob flying through space. It's not quite as weird as uh, the Gleek Bass scenes from the previous episode, but this is pretty weird, too. It's just, like I said, it's a sight to see. Now, it took some effort after uh, three times banging on the force field. Jaina slips through. Now, Wonder Woman unrolls the lasso right in front of these two guards. And is this show trying to tell me that these guards just kind of didn't see the golden lasso rolling across the floor? There's no point to guarding a room if you're guarding a room with your eyes closed. Again, just from what I know from doing security for a bunch of years. So these, these two uh, guards get tripped up and Wonder Woman and the twins move deeper into the station. So Wonder Woman uh, lassos Lion X and he's uh, going to tell the truth. But he can still bluster because, you know, it might be true that he believes that Wonder Woman cannot defeat their plans. Wonder Woman uses a voice device to disguise her voice. So she sounds like Lion X and that works well enough for the Lion Men to turn off the device. But then the Wonder Twins do what they do best and screw everything up. They turn on the cameras and get Wonder Woman caught and the Stratoway reactivated at twice the power. The Lion Men had their own version of the Magic Lasso, and their, uh, the ray that they have makes Wonder Woman reveal the Super Friends' plan. So, the Lion Men attack the Super Friends as they find the rare elements. So now we've got some action as Aquaman is chased by two Lion Men in uh, submersibles. Now remember, under the uh, TV violence, you know, violence and kids cartoons rules that were set forth by that parent council, which caused the uh, eventual end of the Filmation Superman show, at this time, the Super Friends cannot physically engage their enemies. But Aquaman can fight submersibles and use a whale and use sea life to uh, defeat submersibles. Aquaman gets them to immobilize each other. That's okay, according to the rules. So he can bring Superman the gems that he found. Batman and Robin find some more rare element. And they're about to contact Superman when uh, they're attacked. And uh, here come Batman and Robin on jet-powered Batskis because... Of course, Batman and Robin have jet-powered Batskis. And Batman can make his own toy line with all the stuff he's got. The Batcopter, the Batskis, the Bat-this, the Bat-that. This man is a marketing genius. He knows how, he knows his branding. And uh, they use their jet-powered Batskis to outmaneuver the Lion Men and drop some ice on them. We don't even know what happened with Superman as he just shows up with two Lion Men under his arms. And he's going to turn, in, turn them into whatever authorities handle alien Lion Men. It might be a bureau of the government. I don't know. Now, basically, Lion X is going to turn Wonder Woman into a statue, and the twins and Gleek show up to help her. Jaina the Grizzly Bear and Zan the Sheet of Ice help free Wonder And Jaina the Grizzly Bear and Zan and Ice Saw help free Wonder Woman. So, Batman and, Batman and Robin and Aquaman look over the... So, in the next scene, we see that Batman and Robin and Aquaman have taken over the Lion Man ship, so they try to... Fight through the Lion Man until Wonder Woman shows up, giving Aquaman time to turn off the force field. And this gives Superman time to do his thing, and he uses the new gemstone to... He replaces the one that was originally there, and puts the new one in, and that pulls Earth back together and foils the Lion Man's plot. And then we get the moral of our story. Basically, the Lion Men learn that crime doesn't pay, and the twins say Lion X's customers are just as guilty. And... Using his tail as a whip... Meek pretends to be a lion tamer and cages himself under a stool because that's the kind of thing that we expect from Bleak. All right, and by the way, the uh, decoder solution is laser beam, obviously too uh, reminiscent of the laser beam in this episode. All right, so this was, you know, a decent episode. Uh, the action was good. Uh, the lion men were decent enemies. You know, not our classic enemies, but 
you know, they're villainous. He is selling off pieces of a planet to satisfy his customers, so he's a businessman, but not a businessman anybody wants to run into. But I'm not sh- sure what authorities the Super Friends can handle the alignment off to, so we really... And that's not really part of our story. We're not going to find out what happens to the Lionman after this is over. So, you know, decent episode. And another C-plus effort. Now let's move on to some of the other shorts. Start with The Forbidden Power. Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman rescue Professor Zarkov and his assistant when the Professor deciphers an alien device and teleports to an artificial planet in search of a dangerous power source. Alright, so this scientist wants to teleport himself to the planet that a device he found came from. He wants to help Earth and drags his poor assistant with him, who doesn't really want to go. And they end up on an alien planet for a week. And after a week, the U.S. military seems to have run out of options and has called the Super Friends. Batman and Robin investigate. And they find the teleporter and the sphere. And, you know, I love how uh, all of the aircraft are spacefaring. Both the Batplane and the Invisible Jet can break free of the atmosphere and fly through space. As they approach what Wonder Woman calls a man-made world. So Robin is captured by a giant rat-crab hybrid and is rescued as Batman and Wonder Woman pull the claw apart. You know, they're basically standing on either side of this thing and pulling the claw apart so Robin can get free. They find the scientists who are held captive by the creature. They want to take Zarkov home. Zarkov doesn't want to go home. He wants to get to the power despite warning that it's dangerous. And he causes a cave-in to trap Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman. Zarkov finds the power and is about to be boiled in oil for his trouble by these uh, green creatures and wine cloths and... Uh, and I, when I mentioned before about the sensors, uh, during the fight sequence, Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman show up to save Zark- Zarkov from the creatures. There is no punching, just roping and escaping. You know, Wonder Woman roping things with her lasso, like she's in a rodeo, is okay. But apparently throwing punches at alien creatures is not. So, Zarkov learns his lesson and was overcome by his quest to help mankind. You know, another one of those uh, people who get themselves in trouble because they're trying to help humanity. But going about it a little bit the wrong way. Alright, so that takes care of that one. Now we're going to move on to Pressure Point. When a boy tries to jump a dangerous ravine on a motorcycle, the twins save him before he loses altitude. He learns that he doesn't have to try a dangerous stunt just to prove himself. So, we're going to... the first My first thought at the end of this episode is what kids are going to do something stupid this episode. But first we have our safety tip. Don't use our rusty skates or wobbly skateboards. Lubricate them and stay safe. Make sure everything's tightened. That way you don't fall out. Fall down and injure yourself. Good advice. Good advice there. Alright, so we start with this episode where we get this guy, Jerry. He wants to do a jump on his bike. At first he fails at going up and is laughed at, so he wants to uh, jump the ravine to show that he can do it. You know, this was the 70s, also the heyday of Evil Knievel, so uh, jumping on, you know, motorcycle stunts are at the uh, forefront of everybody's minds. So the twins are ice skating, and Zan uh, gets out there and slips and ends up on the ice, which is pretty much what I would do. Now, I've always said to people who, uh, you know, suggested that I go ice skating with them, I should just sit down on the ice because I'd end up down there anyway. May as well deal with the cold rather than the uh, bump that comes from falling and uh, hitting the ice hard. Of course, uh, these teenagers call the Wonder Twins to stop Jerry from doing his jump because apparently nobody else is available. Now, Jaina becomes a pelican and she catches uh, Jerry in her mouth after he fails his jump. So, everyone's sorry for teasing Jerry and driving him to do dangerous stuff, and uh, Jerry is thankful for his rescue. He learns his lesson. Everybody's happy. He learns that he, Jerry learns that he was fine just the way he was, and he didn't have to do anything to prove himself to others. You know, that's good advice. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of their time trying to prove themselves to others. 
prove yourself to you, because eventually you're the only one who can judge you. Don't let other people do that for you. You be the judge of yourself. And that's about all the advice I've got at this hour of evening. So, Day of the Rats. A sonic device is lost in the sewers after a truck accident. Causes a plague of rats. While Batman and Robin follow rat attacks, Black Vulcan finds and destroys the device. Black Vulcan. Remember, he's our uh, Hanna-Barbera version of Black Lightning. He even looks so much like Black Lightning that I think when I was taking notes on the episode, I wrote Black Lightning a couple times. So some kind of device lands among a bunch of rats and it sets the creatures off. Now here they come, taken to the streets, and they overwhelm everyone on the street, including cats. And there is strength in numbers as uh, this uh, bunch of rats is causing a lot of trouble. Now the back computer reveals an electronic device is driving the rats nuts. Black Vulcan speculates that the device must be in the sewers. A scanner with the back copter finds the device. And Black Vulcan uses his electrical powers to short out the device, the rats go away, and everybody lives happily ever after until the next episode. I really don't have anything else to say about that. No, it's great. It's a bunch of rats running through town. Yay. I don't want to see Batman fighting rats. I want to see Batman fighting his rogues gallery, not a bunch of rats running around Gotham City. So, that's all I've got for this week. Next time, I'm going to cover the main episodes, the tiny world of terror and the mummy of Nazca. If you want to send feedback into the show, feedback is always welcome. Send your email to manofscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over in the Facebook group, just type Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And uh, if you don't mind, why don't you leave me a review on Apple's, on Apple, on Apple Podcast. That helps others find the show. So, until next time, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the two true freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast. Man of Screen.